Hi. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to be reading from the book of Acts. Uh, thanks to Beth for uh, introducing us this morning and get our thoughts, our thoughts and minds on the, uh, the right page. Uh, Acts chapter 8 is uh, interesting. That, go ahead and turn there if you don't mind. Uh, it's an interesting chapter because it's sort of the turning point in, well, it's a turning point in the book of Acts where things are going along fairly hunky-dory and all of a sudden they're not hunky-dory anymore. Uh, so in order to really understand how not hunky-dory they are, I think it's important to do a summary of seven chapters in the sermon. So get comfortable. We're going to be here for a very long time. Uh, Acts is a history book. You guys know this. It talks about the very early church, like brand new baby church. Jesus rises from the dead. He appears before a whole bunch of people. Lots of people see them with their eyes. Uh, he goes up into heaven, but just before being uh, lifted up into heaven, the apostles are all standing there watching him go up to heaven. He tells them to go and tell everyone, everyone, the things that they had seen and heard. They are called to make disciples. That's what their job is. Weeks later, the day of Pentecost came. It's a big day in the uh, history of the church. And on that day, Peter, one of the apostles, he stands up and he gives a sermon to a crowd of people in Jerusalem who may have seen the crucifixion, and miraculously, everybody, despite being from countries all over the place, they hear Peter in the language that they understand. It's a miracle. And his message was super clear. He did not pull any punches that day. He said, the man that you all had crucified was the Messiah. Oops. Bad news. And on that day, the church gains 3,000 followers. That's a really good day, isn't it? 3,000 people realized Jesus was who he said he was, and we're going to start following him. It's a great day. The apostles stay in Jerusalem. They heal a bunch of people. They preach some more sermons. The number of Christians goes to 5,000, but the book of Acts says there were 5,000 men. So I don't know, double that, I guess, if you want to add women and kids. So that many, the church has like exploded. I mean, can you imagine if from in, in the span of weeks, the church goes from like, 300 people, you know, a couple people that followed, followed Jesus around, the apostles, and boom, now there's 5,000 guys that you have to figure out what to deal with. At that point, Peter and John, they, have, they get hauled before uh, the Jewish leaders. They want to know, what is up? You guys used to be Jews. Now you're advocating for a whole different set of rules. And Peter and John give their defense, and they let them go. That's the first hint. All is not right in Jerusalem. Lots more people get healed. The apostles get arrested again, but God sends them an angel to break them out of jail. It's a true story. Broke them out of jail, and guess what they do? Go and rest, lick their wounds, have a nice meal at the buffet because they're hungry. Nope. They go, and they start preaching immediately. That's what they do. They walk out of jail, and they start telling people about Jesus. Uh, they get arrested again. They get flogged this time. Hmm. Things are heating up a little bit, aren't they? Now we've switched from, hey, knock it off, to we're going to beat you up until you knock it off. And this line is humbling to me. We should probably just stop right after I read this, but we're not going <laughs> to. The apostles get flogged, they get released, and then here's what the book of Acts says. The apostles were rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And name is, in cap is capital N. What's the name, do you think? Jesus. They got flogged 
And they left saying, yes, we were worthy to suffer for Jesus. Huh. I don't know if I could do that. Then we get to a man named Stephen. The Bible describes Stephen as a man full of God's grace and power. That's a good thing to put on your business card, I think. He gets brought before the Jewish leaders, and they ask him to defend the preaching that he had been doing all over Jerusalem. And then he opens his mouth. You guys go home and read it this week. Acts chapter 7. He gives the most beautiful sermon where he weaves like Jewish history, and here's all the things that God has done in our people, and here's how we get to the point where Jesus arrives on the scene, and he really is God's son, and we should follow him. It's beautiful. But the point of his sermon is, every single time God sent someone to you, Israelites, you killed him. Every time. Every single time they preached a message to you, you missed the point. And Stephen concludes the sermon by saying this. I'm just going to read it to you because it's a good conclusion. 751. You stiff-necked people. It's point fingers. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. That's a bad thing to call a Jewish person. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? Almost no. They killed almost every one of them. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, capital R, capital O, who's that? And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Them's fighting words. I mean, they, he insulted every single aspect of their life. And they're the Jewish leaders. They, and they freak out. The Jewish leaders freak out. And then Stephen looks up to heaven. He's given this vision. He says, look, I see heaven open. Can you imagine? Here's the punchline. And the Son of God standing at the right hand. Or Son of Man, sorry. Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's what Stephen saw with his eyes. What do you think the Jewish leaders were like? Oh, well, that's wonderful. What a great vision. We're so pleased that you see the man that we just killed standing next to God in heaven. Nope. That was the last straw. They dragged Stephen out of the, seas, out of the city and they throw rocks at him until he's dead. That was their response to Stephen's beautiful sermon. And then we get to chapter 8. Hey, we just summarized seven chapters. We did it. Not too bad. We get to chapter 8, which begins in the most mysterious, dramatic way possible. It's actually kind of like the very end of 7. It bleeds right into 8, and it says this, And Saul approved of their killing him. If we were watching a movie on the book of Acts, the camera would zoom into Saul's He would look so evil, and he would be snarling at the early Christians and clapping because everybody decided to go out and kill Stephen with rocks. The Bible actually says that uh, when they were on their way out of town, they're like, Saul, hold my coat, and he's holding everybody's coats while they go out and kill Stephen. Huge change in the tone of the book of Acts, Right? Yay, there's 5,000 Christians. It's a miracle. Praise God. Look at all the wonderful things he's doing. We just killed somebody because they advocated that Jesus was the Messiah. Huge change. And that's what we're talking about today. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. 
And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women to put them in prison. What does it cost me, Brian Rodert, to be a follower of Jesus? Not much, honestly. I mean, my paychecks come from Central Christian Church. You could argue that I gain from being a follower of Jesus in some kind of perverse way, right? I don't usually get made fun of or treated any different because I'm a follower of Jesus. I bet you probably don't either, do you? Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's always a walk in the park and super easy to do. And, I, you know, and if you experience any persecution at all, it's unusual, not at all. But a bad guy named Saul is not going through the streets of Rockford and dragging people off to, to prison because they're Christians. Doesn't happen. They were really, really easy. Really easy. We live in a time and a place of incredible religious freedom. Incredible. Persecution is not a concern for us at all. Do you ever wonder why that is? God's on the throne, yeah. He knows how this story is all going to play out to all the way to the end of human history. Why is it that he chose the brand new baby church to face almost instantly persecution to the point of death? And we face nothing of the kind, nothing. Why? This brand new baby church in Jerusalem, they're still wet behind the ears. They scatter. They got to go for their safety. Like to save their lives, they have to leave town. I can imagine like families getting separated in the chaos. Like Saul's coming. We got to get out of here, right? I can envision like mom and dad having a conversation at night after the kids go to bed where they're trying to decide like, is it time to go? Do we got to get out of here? What, like, what do we take? How long are we going to be gone? They're literally running for their lives. Why did God choose those people to suffer that kind of persecution? But we are all sitting on comfy padded pews, right? Doesn't seem fair, does it? And then there's little old me. Sometimes I whine when my faith is inconvenient, right? You guys with me? Like sometimes if the heat is a little too warm on a Sunday, then I get upset and I wish somebody would do something about it, right? That sometimes that's my faith kind of gets reduced down to that, just complaining about things. Look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. How about that? This brand new baby church, they didn't just run, they ran. And they were talking the whole time. When things got tough, they didn't just hide. They didn't regret that they had ever started to follow Jesus. They didn't say, oops, never mind, this is a little too much for me. They preached everywhere they went. They're running from their lives and they're talking it up with the people who were on the road with them as they traveled to wherever they're going. And sometimes I thought about this this week. I wonder if the fact that they were running for their lives kind of amped up their witness, right? They're, they're talking to somebody on the road, and they're like, yeah, you, we met this man. He was, his name was Jesus. He said and did some amazing things. He offered forgiveness. We all get to be you know, with God someday because of the things he did. And right now we're running because we're followers of his. I would listen to that person, wouldn't you? 
Like they are paying the price individually for their faith. That, I think that gives them believability. It gives weight to their words. Verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the, crowd heard, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Don't miss this, church. A man named Philip ended up going down to a city in Samaria. Seems like a short, ordinary sentence. They're just giving you some directions of where Philip decided to go. There's a lot packed into that sentence. The Jews were an incredibly proud people. They had a direct line to God. You know this. They were his chosen people. They had a, a rich history. They lived differently from the people around them. If you saw a Jewish person and a non-Jewish person, you wouldn't recognize the Jewish person. They were so different from the people around them. The way that they dressed was different. Uh, the things that they eat was different. The, the cycle, like their week, weekly schedule was different. There were things that they didn't do that others did and vice versa. Like Everybody knew the Jewish people were very, very different. And the Jews did not like the Samaritans. If they were traveling to a city on the other side of Samaria, so if I'm here, Samaria's in the middle, and I'm going here, they would not take the road through Samaria. They would go around Samaria at extra cost, at extra inconvenience, because they didn't want to be soiled by the dirt that existed in Samaria. It's true. The Samaritans were kind of half-Jewish people. They were sort of a mixed-race bunch of people. They kind of followed God's law, but they did it in a very haphazard way, and the Jews didn't want anything to do with that. And because of all this, the Jews hated the Samaritans. There's a lot of racism in there. They're not like us. They don't do the things that we do. They, maybe they don't look like us. So we're not even going to cross foot into the place where those people live. And Philip finds himself there. Now, I don't know how intentional Philip's travels were. I don't know if he said, well, I got to go. I might as well go hide in Samaria. I don't know if he was just running and went wherever the crowd took him. And all of a sudden he looked up and he saw that he was in Samaria. I don't know what happened. But he was there, and while he was there, he told people about Jesus, and people got healed, and the city was changed. Did you see that? There was great joy in the city. They were so excited about the amazing things that Philip was doing while he was in town. So let's stop for a minute. The persecution is ramping up in the church. It's, it, the church is growing in number. It seems like the believers are living their lives according to the laws that Jesus gave them. Things are looking really good, except for the persecution. And suddenly everyone scatters. Everybody's got to go. And I am convinced, I don't have any proof of this, but how could you not? I am convinced that the early Christians, at some point, at least one of them asked the question that all of us in this room have asked at some point, why is this happening to me? I mean, aren't we doing the right thing following Jesus? 
How on earth is it going so poorly for us if that's what we're doing? I mean, is Jesus not God's son? Why would we be treated like this? Why would God not protect us and shelter us and keep us from the bad things that are going on? Have you guys ever asked that question? I have. You know, the doctor's diagnosis is grim. Why? You got a child that's rejected the faith and you're wondering, what are we going to do? Grocery bill is higher than ever and the paycheck is smaller than ever. Do you guys feel that pressure? Why? And I bet sometimes the question that we ask ourselves is even a little bit more pointed. Why is God letting this happen to me? That's, that's a bigger question. That's a deeper question. We're bringing God into the picture when we ask that question. When the early church faced an event that would probably cause everyone in this room to say, why us? God ended up using it so that word about his son would spread to places that nobody ever dreamed it was spread. He pushed the church out of their comfort zone. Was it good to hang out in Jerusalem? Yes, that's where they lived. That's where 5,000 other people that were just like them, that believed the same things that they did, that's what they, where they were. Of course it would have been easier to hang out in Jerusalem, but it would not have been better. God's word would not have spread if everything was easy and comfortable. So God said, boop, scatter, and talk to everybody you run into while you're scattering. Do you guys remember what Jesus' command was to the apostles? It wasn't hang out in Jerusalem and make disciples, was it? It was go and make disciples. Get out of here. Here's my question. What if we started to look at hard times that we're facing and we try and figure out what is God doing behind the scenes? Something doesn't go right, and instead of going, uh, why me? We go, hmm, what's God doing? Where's he pushing me? It requires a lot of faith, doesn't it? It requires a lot of maturity for us to just be willing to submit to God's plan despite any hardship that we might be facing. And everything, everything we face is a temporary hardship, isn't it? It absolutely is. Someday every hardship that we face is going to get fixed. I don't know if it's here on earth or in heaven, but it's going to be fixed. I have the goofiest example. My grandma passed away while we lived overseas. And it's one of those things where we weren't totally sure if I should go back for the funeral because it cost an arm and a leg to fly back, but I decided we would. I, I think I bought a ticket for the next day. I head to Rome. I get on the plane, and I remember... <laughs> I remember watching the baggage handlers. Have you, ever guys, you guys ever seen this? Watching the baggage handlers play with our luggage while they were, we were sitting on the tarmac. I thought, get it together, fellas. I got to get home, right? Pilot finally comes on. He said, there's a problem with the luggage. It didn't match the passengers. And I, I thought, yes, obviously not. They're juggling it. Like, <laughs> there's bound to be a mistake. And I was just sitting there. And you know the feeling? Like, you have zero control of that situation. But you're just like going like this, like we got to take off. A couple hours passed. I, I was about ready to deplane and help them. Like how hard can it be, right? And I remember I got my next, I landed in London, missed my flight. I go to the longest line you've ever seen to get rebooked. And she says, there's no way you will make it back in time for the funeral. Urgh. I was so angry. 
ended up going home. I arrive at my grandma's house literally as the last person is leaving from the dinner that was after the funeral. I missed it. But there was a really cool thing that happened. My aunt was there. My aunt lives in Texas. And it was not, it was months later that she was diagnosed with dementia. And since I was already in the house, I stayed for a few days just to visit with family and friends. And I spent time with my aunt going through old history books, like old you know, newspaper clippings that my grandma had saved that made no sense to me. But my, my aunt was able to explain, like, well, this is so-and-so. And I got like a crash course in my family history that I never would have gotten before. And it was not long after that that her mental capacity started to decline. And I look back now that I'm not angry at American Airlines or whatever it was, and I think, wow, like, did God do that? Grandma didn't need me to be there, right? But maybe my aunt did. I don't know. I don't have any evidence for this. I can't tell you all for sure that God's hand was behind the lazy luggage handlers in Rome, but he used it, didn't he? I know it's a silly example. There's big things and little things that we all face that only with the passage of time we go, huh, was that God? Was he working behind the scenes to do something? Sometimes, not every time, God uses hard stuff that we all face to advance his greater purpose in the world. Now, I want to be really clear, and I want you to make sure that the next person you talk to about this very subject, you, you explain this well. Because I think it's easy to go too far and say that God makes the hard things happen. No, maybe, but not every time. Don't tell somebody that every time a bad thing happens to you, it's God doing it. Sometimes bad things happen because this world is messed up and it stinks. And things are broken and, and God hasn't fixed them yet. Sometimes that's why bad things happen. I don't want it to make it out like God is like, playing a big chessboard and we're the pawns that he sacrifices to save the world, right? God didn't cause the persecution of the early church. Saul did. Saul did that. And because that was going on, God scattered the church and God let amazing things happen and people got to hear about Jesus. Do you think that makes the hard times worth it? I do. So what's something tough that you're going through right now? What's the challenge that you're facing that is causing upheaval in your life and you don't know what to do? What's the hard thing that you just cannot quite figure out? What am I supposed to do? Could it be possible that God is going to use that thing to shake the cobwebs off of your faith and remind you of his mission, which is to make disciples? Oh. So Monday, when Sherm texted me and said, my grandson is born, or will be born, and we're headed down there and asked me if I could preach for him. I said, sure. What am I preaching on? Oh, you know, being missionaries. Ugh, of course. The former person who lived overseas as a missionary, of course, Acts chapter 8 is the passage that I have. It's like I'm typecast. I only have one sermon. It's like, go make disciples. Some people do need to go overseas and tell people about Jesus because there's a whole bunch of people in the world that have never, literally never even heard the name of Jesus. Not one time in their life. They, they haven't even been able to reject him. They don't even know what you're talking about. And for a time, my family, we did that. We went to a different country and told people about Jesus. 
But some people need to go right next door to your neighbor. And you live close, so you should do that. Some people need to reach the nations that exist right here in Rockford. Did you know that there's lots of nations living here in Rockford? They came to us. They can't make it any easier than that, can they? I don't even have to go anywhere to reach the nations. Some of us need to take that hard thing that we're going through and we need to share it with somebody that's going through something similar and talk about the things that we're learning and what God is doing in our lives through that hard thing. It's a way for us to kind of see life as God's great big tapestry. Like he's weaving something and we don't always know what he's doing. And sometimes the thread goes of our life and it's painful and it's hard. And it's probably only with the passage of decades that we're able to look back at that and go, Oh my word, did God do that hard thing so that I would do this other cool thing that made his kingdom bigger? I don't know. But I know that God takes hard things and he makes something beautiful every time. Every time. This past week was the anniversary of the death of one of my good friends. He was an Italian guy. His name is Masi. I know I've told you guys about him before. He's a great guy. He loved Jesus a lot. And almost as soon as I met him, he got cancer. And a lot of our friendship was me hanging out in the hospital with Mossy, completely unaware of what to say. <laughs> you guys ever been in a room like that where hard stuff is happening and you're sitting there going, huh, I'm probably supposed to say something smart, Right? There's probably some word of comfort I could share, but a lot of times it was just us kind of being upset at the situation. You ever been in a room like that? The person across from you is suffering and you're just kind of sitting there because you're not quite sure what to say. That was the first time I had really any kind of you know, close relationship with somebody who had an illness that they were not going to survive. It stunk. It was just hard. And I thought more than once, God, what on earth are you doing? But it's only after decades have passed that I'm able to look back and kind of recognize that I learned something from that experience. I got a glimpse of God at work in nasty situations. I saw how he shows up in a hospital room where you're just listening to the IV machine drip and drip and drip. I'm like, oh, God's there too. That's kind of amazing. I'm much more comfortable dealing with that kind of stuff now. That's a good thing. Would I want to go through it again to learn that lesson? No, not really. But I'm glad I did. Masi's fiance, whose faith was destroyed, and I'm not exaggerating, destroyed. She walked away from God, like took a 180 and said, nope, I want nothing to do with this anymore. But only, it's only now, decades later, that she is coming back to the faith. And her faith is more refined, and it's less based on her fiancé, her fiancé's faith. And it's more her own. And it is a joy for me to kind of watch that from all the way over here and see her grow and mature in that way. That's a good thing that came out of it, right? Were the early Christians happy to get kicked out of their homes? Woohoo! No, I wouldn't be. Did God bring, out, bring about something good because of it? You bet he did. That's what he does best. He does beautiful things with the mess that life often is here on earth. So what do we do 
with this passage. I don't have any control over whether or not persecution starts tomorrow in Rockford, Illinois. Nothing I can do about it. Honestly, I don't have much control over anything. Do you all? No. But what if, just like those brand new baby Christians in the book of Acts, we just decided that no matter what happens to us physically, no matter what happens to us, our situation, our life, we are going to tell people about Jesus and what he means to us and how perfect his sacrifice on the cross was. Does that sound too simple? I mean, I don't know. That no matter where we end up, our mouths are going to be open and we're going to be talking about Jesus. What if we start to see the different things that happen to us, the good things and the bad things, as opportunities to be pushed into new situations to tell people about Jesus? Is that too simple? I lead the college-age small group. Hey, guys. It's a group full of young men and women whose lives are defined by transition. It's the age they're at, right? A 22-year-old, 21-year-old, 20-year-old, that's all they do is change. They go from thing to thing to thing because that's what kids, young people, young adults, their age do. Things change for them. And whenever I talk to young people like them, I encourage them as they approach the next decision, whatever's coming next, where do I go to school, where am I going to move to, Um, my mom and dad are driving me crazy, what should I do, all of those decisions that they all face, I tell them the same thing, explore all your options, look at what you got in front of you, what has God placed there, talk to wise friends, see what they think, pray for guidance, and then pick, just pick. Go where God leads you and let him nudge you into situations and new circumstances that you never dreamed possible. And wherever, whatever part of God's kingdom he pushes you into, let him use you. Because there are people in that part of the world, wherever you end up, that need to know about Jesus, right? Right? Yeah. Okay. Let me add a great big parenthetical. We're almost done. The early church got pushed into a place that they never dreamed of. I, I really believe this. Samaria. And there's a chance he might do the same thing to us. There are still a ton of people all over the world that haven't, haven't ever heard the name Jesus. And maybe someone in this room is going to be pushed into that corner of the world to tell them about Jesus. Maybe one of us in this room needs to find out what it means to be a Christian in Iran or the Philippines or Uzbekistan. Maybe somebody in this room needs to figure out how we can support the Christians that are there or how we can support the people that are there to plant a church. Maybe we need to get pushed into a pocket of Rockford that doesn't really look like us very much. Looks a lot different than our little pocket of Rockford. Maybe we're getting pushed pushed to hang out with people that we don't really know anything about. Or maybe we're getting pushed next door. Wherever it is that you're being sent, and you are being sent, like that is for sure, let God use you to advance his kingdom just by opening your mouth and talking about Jesus. There's another little mini story in in Acts 8. Uh, We're going to skip it. You're going to read it at home. So just keep reading from where we left off. 
Uh, it talks about a specific evan- evangelist and you know the conversions that happened there. But I'm gonna I'm gonna let you read that later. Here's how the chapter ends. Acts chapter eight. It's bad for the church, but here's how it ends. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Many villages were changed just because Peter and John went back home. And on their way, they would stop in a village fill up their chariot with gas, and they would tell everybody there about Jesus. Can you imagine just our presence, our arrival as followers of Jesus into a city changes a city for good? Can you imagine uh, how many places do we all go in one week? Think about the number of places that we go all week. And can you imagine just leaving this trail of goodness in our wake of people who weren't followers of Jesus before, but now they are? I want to be that kind of church. Do you all want to be that kind of church? I definitely want to be that kind of church. Let's pray and ask him to help us to be that kind of church. Father, thank you for this um, story in the book of Acts, and I thank you for the example that it is for us to follow of what people that are 100% committed to Jesus look like. This is how they are. This is the things that they do. God, may we live up to that high standard. May we be the same way. May we leave a wake of Jesus' followers wherever we are. God, some of us are going to go far away. And we're going to tell people about Jesus there. Some of us are going to go next door. And we're going to go tell people about Jesus. Some of us have workplaces that we go to, clubs that we hang out in, gyms, libraries. I don't know, God. You send all of us to lots of different places. God, wherever we go, may we leave Jesus. Thank you for being at work in our city. And we look forward to the day when you Bless us with thousands of followers as well. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.